Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Karen Price. But first, your true crime headlines. In Los Angeles, the murder trial of real estate tycoon Robert Durst is underway, nearly 20 years after the crime for which he stands accused. 76-year-old Durst faces first-degree murder charges in the death of his longtime friend, Susan Berman, who was shot execution-style in 2000. The story was chronicled in the 2015 HBO docuseries The Jinx, which also explores the 1982 disappearance of Durst's first wife, Kathleen McCormick, as well as the killing and dismemberment of Morris Black, for which Durst was acquitted in 2003. Durst maintains his innocence and has pleaded not guilty to the charges against him. His trial is expected to take as long as five months to complete. A judge in Wayne County, Michigan, has been arrested on charges of domestic violence, assault, and battery, stemming from an incident involving his live-in partner, a 55-year-old woman. 59-year-old David Parrott was arrested by officers who responded to the couple's home after the woman called police. She told the officers that Parrott had assaulted her and showed them the injuries that he is alleged to have caused. Parrott's arraignment was held at a nearby courthouse after his staff asked to be disqualified from the case. This is the judge's second arrest in the past 14 months. He was arrested for a DUI on Christmas Day of 2018, and that case is still pending. He has been ordered to turn over all of his guns, is forbidden from drinking alcohol, and will be required to wear an alcohol monitoring device while he awaits trial. His next hearing has been scheduled for later this month. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of how pioneering forensics unearthed a 10-year-old secret. But first, a quick break. When it comes to beauty products, there are thousands of choices. This year, I've decided to clear out my makeup bag and cabinets and start fresh with a focus on higher quality, healthier products that aren't just about beauty, but beauty with a purpose. This year, I decided to Thrive. Thrive Cosmetics makes vegan, 100% cruelty-free beauty products right here in the USA without the use of parabens or sulfates and without sacrificing performance. These skin-loving, performance-driven ingredients are clinically proven to highlight your best features and provide long-lasting wear. The Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara with Orchid Stem Cell Complex is the first I've tried that doesn't irritate my sensitive eyes or make my eyelashes fall out. This flake-free liquid fiber technology combines buildable fibers with Korean plant extracts the Orchid Stem Cell Complex stimulates and encourages your own lashes to grow. But Thrive Cosmetics doesn't just have incredible makeup formulas. The Bright Balance 3-in-1 Cleanser is gentle enough for my tricky combination skin, but powerful enough to remove waterproof makeup effortlessly, leaving my skin feeling soft and never stripped dry. But what I love most is that Thrive's vision goes beyond skin deep. Their bigger-than-beauty mission is to empower women everywhere. 
For every product you purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help women thrive. Their causes include women emerging from homelessness, surviving domestic abuse, and women fighting cancer. Choosing Thrive isn't just about looking good. It's about feeling good and doing good. Start thriving and help women in need today by going to thrivecosmetics.com mm and use the code mm for 15% off your first purchase. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash M-M, code M-M, for 15% off. Thrivecosmetics.com slash M-M, code M-M. Start thriving. Did you know that many conventional deodorants contain aluminum, which works by forming a plug in your sweat glands to keep you from sweating? And do you even know what a paraben is? It's time to go native. Native deodorant is made with safe ingredients that you can actually recognize, like coconut oil and shea butter. And making the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant doesn't mean you have to sacrifice on performance. Native keeps me smelling and feeling fresh all day long with over 10 amazing scents for men and women, like their best-selling coconut and vanilla, cucumber and mint, and my favorite, lavender and rose. Plus, limited edition seasonal scents, like blackberry and plum, and a dozen roses for Valentine's Day. Native also offers an unscented option and a baking soda-free formula for those with extra sensitivities. But Native isn't just deodorant. Now you can keep your teeth naturally sparkling with Native's toothpaste. Native's toothpaste use a special blend of naturally derived cleansers, flavors, and whiteners, and comes in two minty flavors whitening wild mint and peppermint oil, and detoxifying charcoal with mint, both with the option of fluoride or fluoride-free that will help keep your mouth squeaky clean. And as always, native products are vegan and never tested on animals, so it's not just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Make the natural choice. Try native today risk-free with free shipping on every order and 30-day free returns and exchanges inside the U.S. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code MM20 during checkout. That's 20% off your first purchase at nativedeodorant.com, promo code MM20 at checkout. Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On December 7, 1989, construction workers in Cardiff, Wales, were excavating the back garden of 29 Fitzhammond Embankment when they unearthed a six-foot rolled-up carpet bound with electrical flex cable. As they unraveled the old rotting carpet, a human skeleton was revealed, completely fleshless, with a black bag covering the skull. When police arrived on the scene, 
They were familiar with the area. Fitz Hammond Embankment had been known as a bedsit land. Buildings in the area had been subdivided to create low-income single occupancy flats, essentially a room with a kitchen where the bathroom was often shared. These lowest of low-cost accommodations attracted a transient community to the area, and police knew it as a place of pimps, prostitutes, and drug dealers. Investigators knew that their suspect would likely have been a previous tenant, but if they were to have any hope of apprehending the killer, first, they would need to identify their victim, which would prove a difficult task. Police called in a pathologist, who swiftly confirmed that this was not a recent burial. The skeleton was complete, but the bones were clean of flesh and there were no visible signs of trauma. All that remained on the bones were a few strands of fair hair. The only information that the pathologist could glean from the skeleton was that the remains were that of a Caucasian female aged between 15 and 20 years old. A dentist who subsequently examined the teeth and jaw confirmed that the girl was in fact just 15 years old. Using entomology, the presence of insect eggs, specifically blowfly pupae, around the site where the carpet was discovered indicated that the body had not been buried immediately after death. The girl's body had initially been kept in an exposed location and was buried a few days later. Perhaps the killer had decided to bury her when the decomposition began to attract flies. Based on the advanced state of decomposition, the body appeared to have been buried for approximately eight to 10 years. But who was she? The discovery of the remains of a pair of jeans and a bra unearthed from the site provided a new lead. Sewn into the bra was a label, Mrs. Nickers, a small company that had operated in England in the early 1980s. Police tracked down the owner of the company, who confirmed that the labels found inside the victim's bra were only in use for a few years, between 1979 and 1983. Police were then able to confirm that no other item of clothing found at the site was manufactured before January of 1981. Between this and the approximate time of death given by the entomologist, the police narrowed down the year the girl was murdered to between 1981 and 1984. Five weeks passed, and police had exhausted all of the evidence, including tracing the carpet to a shop on Clifton Street, but they were still no closer to identifying the girl. So police decided to try something that no one had ever done before. They called Richard Neve at the University of Manchester, who was pioneering a new technique in facial reconstruction. The technique had not been used in a criminal investigation before, but with nothing else to go on, police decided that they had nothing to lose. In the first week of January 1990, the skull was delivered to Richard Neve, 
and he got to work, using a process that even he described as a mixture of scientific knowledge and guesswork. The skull was brought by police to the studio. That skull was then taken down to the dissection room. It would be cleaned and sanitized. I would make a cast of the skull, mounted the cast, fitted eyes, basic muscle structure over the skull, and then the skin over the top, so the face sort of grew from below outward of its own accord. The process would usually take three weeks, but South Wales police gave Neve just five days to complete his work. On January 7, 1990, police released images of the reconstruction to the press. Two days later, two former social workers contacted the police. One called from Yorkshire and the other from Cardiff. Both gave the same name. They recognized the facial reconstruction as a missing girl named Karen Price. Karen Price's parents both confirmed that neither of them had seen or heard from their daughter for a decade. But they agreed that the reconstruction looked quite like Karen. When Karen's parents provided police with photographs, they were stunned. But the only way to confirm that the girl in the carpet was indeed Karen Price would be a DNA test. In 1990, DNA testing had only been around for four years, and extracting DNA from bone had never been attempted before. As with the facial reconstruction, police decided that they had nothing to lose. And they were right. Through the use of multiple DNA samples extracted from the femur, police were able to confirm that the DNA was a match. It was Karen Price. Police then set about discovering everything that they could learn about her lifestyle, her friends and associates, and her movements. Karen had had a troubled childhood. At the age of 10, she was taken into local authority care. Karen often ran away, as many children did. So when the 15-year-old disappeared from a council assessment center in 1981, it didn't cause much concern. At that time, she was nearly 16 years old, a legal adult in the UK. So when Karen never returned, no one was looking for her. Karen Price was last seen on July 2nd, 1981, and had been living, it turned out, just a quarter mile away from Fitzhammond Embankment, where her body was discovered. On the evening of February 15th, the BBC television series Crime Watch included a piece on the Karen Price murder investigation. This is the piece of carpet that the body was found wrapped up in. Detective Chief Superintendent Williams released her photo to the press and appealed to the public that anyone who may have seen Karen or associated with her contact the authorities. Several witnesses came forward and confirmed that they had seen Karen visiting the flat of a man named Alan Charlton at 29 Fitzhammond Embankment. Between June of 1981 and February of 1982, Charlton was the tenant of the basement flat, which had direct access to the garden. 
Karen's body was found within just a few feet of what was then his back door. Alan Charlton was now 30 and working as a bouncer at a pub, where on February 23, 1990, he was arrested on suspicion of murder. Witnesses described Alan Charlton as exploitive and vindictive, a man who preyed upon weak and vulnerable people, people like Karen Price. One of the witnesses who came forward was 24-year-old Idris Ali. Ali told police that in 1981, he had acted as a pimp in Central Square, where he would procure young girls for Alan Charlton's parties at his basement flat. One of those girls was Karen Price, and he had been in Charlton's flat when she was killed. According to Ali, just two months after Karen ran away from the children's home, Charlton told Karen that he wanted to take lewd photographs of her. But Karen refused. Charlton flew into a rage. He raped Karen and strangled her to death. Then he asked Ali to help him wrap her body in the carpet. He did. Later, Charlton buried her body. Idris Ali was promptly arrested for his involvement in Karen Price's murder. At the heart of the case against Charlton and Ali was the witness testimony of a young woman identified in court records only as Dee. Dee testified that she was 13 years old at the time that she knew Karen. They had been in the same children's home. But Dee didn't know Karen in the children's home. They met outside a cafe in Cardiff. At that time, Dee lived a life of glue-sniffing and exploitation. Ali, then just a teenager himself, was her pimp and took half the money that Dee earned. Dee testified that she had had sex with Charlton at his flat and gave half of the money he paid her to Ali. A week later, she met Charlton for sex again when she refused to behave in the way he wanted, he cut her leg with a penknife. Charlton wanted to replace Ali as her pimp. A few days after this incident, after a glue-sniffing session together at Charlton's flat, Charlton asked Dee and Karen to get on the bed naked to pose for photos. Dee refused, and Charlton slapped her in the face. Karen intervened. Dee watched as Charlton turned and punched and slapped Karen until she fell. Ali attempted to pull him off of Karen, but he continued to hit her. Too scared to watch, Dee closed her eyes, and when she reopened them, blood was coming from Karen's mouth, and she wouldn't respond. Charlton then told Dee that Karen was dead. He put Karen's body on the bed, went out, and returned with what looked like white curtain wire. He turned Karen over, tied her hands, and put a carrier bag over her head. He then removed her pants and had sex with her. He told Ali to do the same.
Ali did. But, Dee said, he looked like he wanted to be sick. As Dee cried in the corner, the pair wrapped Karen's body in a rug and took her outside. When they returned, Charlton warned Dee that she would, quote, die the same way if she ever told anyone what happened. Ali then urged Dee to say nothing. Dee believed that he was as scared as she was. Alan Charlton and Idris Ali were both found guilty of the murder of Karen Price. Charlton was sentenced to life in prison. Ali, who was just 16 at the time of the murder, was detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. In 1994, both Charlton and Ali appealed against their convictions, and Charlton's appeal was swiftly dismissed. Ali's conviction was reduced from murder to manslaughter. Ali was advised that if he pleaded guilty, he would be immediately released. On December 21, 1994, Ali stated that the testimony given by Dee during the trial was true. But Ali wasn't free long. Within two years, he was arrested again on two offenses of wounding and sent back to Cardiff Prison. In 2010, Ali's name was in the news again when police appealed for information on his whereabouts after he disappeared from a bail hostel. The public were warned not to approach Ali as he had previous convictions for manslaughter, robbery, football violence, and inciting a brutal cell block riot. He was found five days later in Ely, Cardiff. In 2014, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which investigates potential miscarriages of justice, sent both Charlton and Ali's cases to the appeal court in London. In 2016, their cases were reviewed. Following concerns by the CCRC about the conduct of some officers in South Wales Police in the late 80s and early 90s. Following the Lynette White case, when it was discovered that the three men who had been convicted for her murder were innocent and allegations of police corruption, lawyers for Ali and Charlton argued that some of the officers involved in the investigation had been involved in the Lynette White case. They claimed that Vulnerable witnesses, such as Dee, had been pressured by police. Ali's lawyer said that Ali had significant intellectual impairment which contributed to him making things up and described him as a habitual liar. Ali claimed that he had only admitted his involvement in Karen's death to get out of jail. Their convictions were upheld. The only way in which an appeal could succeed is if we were to find that the prosecution offended the court's sense of justice and propriety to the extent that it amounted in an abuse of process, Lady Justice Hallett said. As we have indicated, we do not. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.